Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, the firing of James Comey has raised questions of a White House cover-up and drawn comparisons to Nixon's Midnight Massacre. But there's another version of this that amounts to not much at all. And an overlooked executive order that would seem to blur the line between church and state, the case for and against politics from the pulpit. It's Monday, May 15th. On Saturday night, the writers of SNL captured a profound sense of outrage over last week's firing of FBI Director James Comey. Your staff has been insisting all week that you didn't fire him because of his Russian investigation. No, I did. (laughs) Wait, what? I fired him because of Russia. I thought, he's investigating Russia. I don't like that. I should fire him. (laughs) And you're just admitting that? Uh Uh-huh. But that's obstruction of justice. Sure, okay. Wait, so did I get him? Is this all over? Oh, no, I didn't. Nothing matters. Absolutely nothing matters anymore. But for many of the president's supporters, the real outrage is over all this outrage in the first place. There is some hypocrisy there, and the right has absolutely delighted in that. They're just loving this. Jeremy Peters writes about conservatives and the right-wing media. So putting aside all the contradicting versions of why President Trump fired James Comey, is there a version of this past week in which the president did nothing at all that alarming? Yes, and that version of events is playing out right now before something like half the country. They are absolutely losing it. They're completely unhinged. On websites like Breitbart and on highly watched networks like Fox. They have deranged liberal crackpots are at it again, and they're using President Trump's decision, very important decision, to fire the now former FBI director to push all kinds of brand new, completely insane, bizarre conspiracy theories. We'll hear not stories about Donald Trump's ever changing and evolving explanation of why he fired Comey, but you will hear stories about how during the NBC News interview with Lester Holt, Lester Holt interrupted Donald Trump nine times and was rude to him. After everything the president said, Lester Holt questioned him. Oh, you said that? Well, what about this? Which, it seemed like an interrogation. Right, and if he had the same it's approach as Obama... totally separate political reality from the one in which liberals are responding with such outrage and indignation over the firing. Jeremy, what is the right-wing case for firing 
James Comey, not just that the president has the right to do it, but that it was actually the right decision to have made. I think that the thing you hear first and foremost is that it was justifiable. That is a simple, basic, fundamental truth. And that is pretty uniform across the right. James Comey was shown the door. He did not do his job. That he appeared to be in this too much for himself, that it was about Jim Comey and not about the investigation. I mean, you hear you had him closing the book or saying he was closing the book on the Hillary Clinton email investigation and insisting that no reasonable prosecutor would bring charges against her when that really wasn't his job. He's an investigator, not a prosecutor. Then, a few months later, on the eve of the election, Hmm. saying that the investigation was going to be reopened, which really gave a lot of conservatives hope. I mean, that was the moment at which they said, hold on, this election that we thought was totally lost for us could be possible. And then, a few days later, Jim Comey comes back and says, "Uh, actually, nothing to see here. Case closed. And this was really infuriating for them. And and on top of that, they saw it as evidence of his incompetence. Mm -hmm. And then Trump becomes president, and Comey once again starts talking about an ongoing investigation into a leading political figure, in this case, the president of the United States. And that confirms their worst fears, leading a lot of them to conclude what Trump did. He's a showboat. He's a grandstander. Jim Comey is a showboat. Well, what do those on the right and in the conservative media make of the fact that the same Democrats who called for James Comey to be removed from the job or said that they had lost confidence in him over the Clinton email investigation are now loudly decrying the decision to remove him. What are those on the right saying about that? I have been laughing all morning long. Now that Trump has fired him and Democrats are crying foul, there is no shortage of outrage. The Democrat Party is going bananas, completely, totally unhinged on the road to literal insanity. And cries of hypocrisy from conservatives who are saying, Wait a second. Isn't this the guy who you said was totally unfit for his job just six months ago? So Trump does what they asked for, and now they hate it. It reminds me when someone says, hey, I think I'm going to take up jogging. And you say, hey, I'll join you after work. And then they say, I really didn't mean it. That's the Democrats. They damned Comey. And out of bipartisan benevolence, Trump grants them their wish which is why their stuttering outrage over his firing makes them look two-faced, which now requires twice as much Botox. But what about the firing? What they see is what they've always believed about mainstream media coverage of Trump. And a step beyond that, elite establishment opinion of Trump, a rabid left that is out to discredit him and undermine him and delegitimize him every step of the way. Now, the liberal media, they want to destroy President Trump. They want him out of office. Now they will do and say anything to make that happen. Now, keep it's like in mind. This, you know, choose your own adventure political reality where if you don't want to be reading the New York Times or, or, or watching CNN and hearing how the president has taken this unprecedented drastic action in firing the head of the investigatory division that is looking into his campaign's activity, you don't have to hear that. All right. But what about the fact that President Trump undeniably changed his version of the story from 
Tuesday to Thursday that without question, the White House first said this was about Clinton's emails and that investigation and that it was firing Comey on the recommendation of the Justice Department. And then two days later, the White House said it was actually the decision of the president on his own, that it was long in the making. Right. What do his supporters say about this? You hear almost none of that. The timeline of events is a story that, for the most part, does not exist in conservative media right now. So finally, back to this Saturday Night Live parody, Lester Holt interviewing President Trump, the fake version of both. This idea that nothing matters anymore is a possible conclusion to draw from the events of the past week that the left is asking the wrong question, which is, you know, when will the line be crossed? And instead, the reality may be that the further outraged liberals become, just the greater this divide becomes. Right. The more overreaction that is perceived on the part of the left, the more underreaction there will be on the right. Hmm. For so long, conservatives have been told that they've misjudged things, that their version of events over the course of this election was wrong. Their candidate couldn't possibly win. He was a buffoon. He was a fraud. He was a pig. And I think you're seeing the fruition of that in, in the Comey case, because once again, the left is outraged. But when the right sees that outrage, they see such an overreaction, such a a Mm -hmm. disproportionate response compared to what they believe to be some pretty egregious things that someone like Hillary Clinton did, who was also being looked into by the FBI, that the question of is anything ever going to be enough, I think, really does miss the point. Because Mm -hmm. both sides are looking at two totally different sets of facts, as far as they're concerned. Jeremy, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. We'll be right back. U.S. Navy SEALs are notorious for their loyalty and secrecy. Yet, in 2018, a platoon broke its silence and accused its chief, Eddie Gallagher, of murder. Did a Navy SEAL cross the line? And in war, how blurry is that line between right and wrong? Catch up and listen to all episodes of The Line, an Apple original podcast hosted by Dan Taberski of Missing Richard Simmons, now on Apple Podcasts. As long as I am your president, no one is ever going to stop you from practicing your faith or from preaching what's in your heart. After a brutal week in Washington, Donald Trump was rewarded with some sanctuary this weekend at Liberty University, a private Christian college in Southern Virginia, where he delivered his first commencement speech as president. A small group of failed voices who think they know everything and understand everyone want to tell everybody else how to live and what to do and how to think. But you aren't going to let other people tell you what you believe, especially when you know that you're right. 
Trump has emerged as an unlikely champion for evangelical Christians, whose support he needed to land the GOP nomination and who ultimately helped deliver him the presidency. And lost in the commotion of the past week was an executive order that Trump signed on May 4th, making good on a promise he made to the religious right during his candidacy. He early on met with some evangelical pastors who described to him their frustration at not being able to be more vocal in politics. My colleague, Lori Goodstein, covers religion for The Times. And uh, made it sound as though the government were persecuting them. One great, great gentleman that everybody knows, but whose name I will not reveal, said, Mr. Trump, we live in fear in our churches and our synagogues. We live in fear that we're going to lose our tax-exempt status if we say anything that's even slightly political. Donald Trump heard this, immediately latched onto it. We will get rid of the Johnson Amendment, okay? I promise you that. The Johnson Amendment, the disaster. And tell me about the Johnson Amendment. Explain it to me. Johnson Amendment has been around for 60 years. It was done by then-Senator Lyndon Johnson. He was upset because there were a couple of nonprofit organizations that were campaigning against him. <laughs> In a, probably a local Texas race. Right. He managed to get this legislation passed that said that Nonprofit organizations that endorsed or opposed candidates were at risk of losing their tax-exempt status. Now, what else is tax-exempt besides nonprofits? Churches mm. and houses of worship. And so that's how religious organizations and nonprofits came to be a part of this. And the truth is that over the years, it was a pretty empty threat. And we only know of one case that a church actually lost its tax-exempt status. When was that? 1995. And what happened then? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a church near Binghamton, New York, and it was actually Randall Terry's church. He's the Operation Rescue anti-abortion guy, and that church took out a full-page ad against President Bill Clinton because of his stance on abortion. I believe this difficult and painful decision should be left to the women of America. The IRS came after them, you know, revoked their tax-exempt status uh, temporarily, probably to make an example of them. But in all these years, that was really the only, you know, church that ever paid a price for this. Lori, what did the president's executive order do? Well, let's first talk about what it didn't do. Okay. It didn't revoke the Johnson Amendment because it can't. It's a law. It takes a law to undo a law. Mm-hmm. So what did it do in relation to the Johnson Amendment? So all it says is that the president is directing the IRS to take broad latitude and to not investigate and not go after religious organizations that endorse or oppose candidates or get involved explicitly in political campaigns. No one should be censoring sermons or targeting pastors. The messaging is more important here than the law. The president is telling you that if you ever, you know, had any, you know, second thoughts mm -hmm. about getting involved in political campaigns, you now have license to do that. So if you were standing on the edge of a cliff wondering if it was a good idea to jump and make an endorsement, now... Now you feel like there are no repercussions at all. Hello, this is Gus. Hey, Pastor Booth, it's Michael Barbaro from The New York Times. How are you? Big Mike, I'm good. <laughs> 
Gus Booth is a senior pastor at the War Road Community Church, an evangelical church in Minnesota. I don't know if you're big or not, but anyway, big night. Just, well, that, that's the uh, that's the irony. It seemed appropriate. So. <laughs> I'm rather <laughs> slight, but but I'll take it. It had never been called that before. Um, as a pastor in a small community, how do you handle politics right now? What's been your way of talking or not talking about politics from the pulpit of your church? Well, I don't see politics as much as I see as morality. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe that the Bible is a moral book, and in order to preach that book, you've got to speak on those moral issues. Now, those moral issues also happen to be political issues. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm wanting politics in my church. I just want morality in my community and in my nation. And what are some examples of of where those two things tend to bleed together and you discuss them? Well, the big two are abortion and religious liberty and or gay marriage. You know, those are three, I guess. And, And just to tick through those three, since you mentioned them, what, to your mind, are the Bible's way of, of thinking about them, and how do you discuss them in church? Well, the Bible is, is clear that marriage is between one man and one woman. Um, the Bible is also clear that sexuality is reserved for males and females to have sex with each other within the covenant of a marital relationship. And the Bible is also a pretty big proponent of free speech. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the religious liberty aspect of it. And help me understand, when you say religious liberty and freedom of speech, what do you exactly mean? Well, I believe that it's dangerous if the government can ever tell people what they can and can't say. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, like you being a journalist, Mm -hmm. if the government ever said, you can't do a story on this particular subject, what would you do? I think I I would feel resistant. Of course, you would do a story on that subject. So the government told preachers what they can and can't say from behind the pulpit in the form of the Johnson Amendment in 1954. I realized that, and I thought, well, I'm not going to submit to that. Hmm. It was in competition with the Constitution, right? You have two competing federal laws. One is the constitutional law, and one is the IRS tax code. Like, what trumps what? I mean, I would think that our Constitution is quite a bit more important than the tax code. Well, how has the Johnson Amendment operated in your world as the leader of a church? What what has it restricted you from doing or potentially restricted you from doing? Well, it potentially restricts preachers from talking about moral issues that are biblical issues, but it has never restricted me. Hmm. I was the the first pastor in the history of the United States to challenge the IRS and their imposition of the Johnson Amendment. Tell me exactly what you did. Um, I got an email uh, from a group of attorneys called the Alliance Defending Freedom that were looking for somebody to challenge this. And I thought, well, of course, that's fantastic. I will definitely challenge that. And I endorsed John McCain from behind my pulpit. 
politics from the pulpit. My next guest is telling his congregation to vote against Barack Obama. Which is a no-no according to the Johnson Amendment. Uh, Booth uh, tells his congregation that God wants them to vote Republican. And I didn't care about endorsing John McCain as much as I cared about challenging an amendment that's unconstitutional. Speech. We don't have to pay for freedom of speech, and that's essentially what the IRS is saying that we need to do. All right, Pastor Booth, we'll follow up as the IRS uh, will investigate... Uh, but I've never heard anyone have anything good come out of challenging the IRS. The IRS did an official inquiry, mm-hmm. basically says that, and I quote, the IRS is closing this examination because of a pending issue regarding the procedure used to initiate the inquiry. So the IRS sort of comes after you, but not really. And the Johnson Amendment remains on the books. How do you think your congregation benefits from you involving yourself in this sort of speech from your pulpit? Well, in the church, there's so much Switzerlandish, you know, theology. What I mean is that many preachers don't want to offend anybody, mm-hmm. and they don't want to take stances on issues where the Scripture is super clear so that they can grow their church to be a bigger church. I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. And I believe that people want truth. I believe that people want truth spoken in a way that isn't angry with a chip on your shoulder, but really has genuine love in their voice and in their heart for those that they're speaking truth to. What do you say to those, including fellow preachers that we have spoken to, who say that church should be a sanctuary from all the divisiveness of politics? You're kind of protected from all of that noise and anger. (laughs) I would say that they're naive and that they would limit their influence of the gospel. You would you limit the gospel's influence if that's what you believe. So I have to ask, did you endorse in this last presidential campaign from the pulpit? And if you did, who did you endorse? I did, and I did endorse Trump. Pastor, I appreciate your time. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too, Mike. I appreciate it as well. These lines will always be kind of muddy. I mean, there are Sundays when I probably make everybody mad. (laughs) Jamie Washam is the pastor at the First Baptist Church in America. Which was founded by Roger Williams in 1638. And I'm sitting here in our historic sanctuary in Providence, Rhode Island. The first place to enshrine the separation of church and state. So, Pastor Washam... What in your mind is the proper role of a church like yours and a pastor like you in politics? I think that we can always go back to the scripture and to the gospels and say, what does our faith teach us about power? I won't endorse a particular candidate, but I will say, here's what scripture says about refugees and the role of those that we consider the mothers and fathers of our faith and how they themselves are displaced peoples. And How might we receive them in our midst now? And I'll remind people that Jesus and his family were refugees. What do you fear that this change from President Trump could potentially do to your church or churches like yours? I am deeply concerned that it privileges certain religious perspectives over others, pretty explicitly. It uses this Orwellian language of religious freedom, but we're already free. The Establishment Clause in the First Amendment to the Constitution already enshrines that, that Congress shall make no law respecting 
an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We already have that in place, and I believe that it privileges certain religious perspectives, certain religious interpretations, usually Christian, over others. And that is a slippery slope that we don't want to get on. Do you think that this change could encourage people to ask pastors like you to become more politically involved or inclined, even if you were reluctant to do so? Well, I think it it could be an invitation, and that is the gentle end of it. It could also become coercive. I can imagine scenarios where someone with deep pockets says, I'm going to take my my pledge dollars elsewhere unless you speak up on behalf of X, Y, and Z. And before now, you would have said, I don't want to do that. And by the way, there are legal consequences if I did do that. But now those consequences are gone. Exactly. Exactly. So in some ways, this protects the the religious institution from that kind of pressure. Um, In my experience, you know, when the the church and the state form alliances, the state rarely suffers. When Roger Williams was enshrining the separation of church and state, it wasn't to protect the state so much from religion. It was to protect religion from the state because he knew that that's the body that will ultimately make compromises and, and lose its integrity. Pastor, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Certainly. Here's what else you need to know today. I would encourage the president to pick somebody we can all rally around, including those who work in the FBI. President Trump says he will move quickly to pick a replacement for FBI director James Comey, telling reporters it could happen before he leaves for his first overseas trip as president on Friday. Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein interviewed a parade of candidates on Saturday at the Justice Department. And the head of Europol, the European Union's police agency, is warning that the global cyber attack that began on Friday is likely to worsen today as the work week begins. If companies haven't patched the problem, by the time their people come to work on Monday morning, I think we could see the rates of infection going up again quite markedly. Many workers, especially in Asia, had already logged off their computers before the malware began to spread, with cyber criminals seizing control of 200,000 computers around the world and demanding a ransom from FedEx in the United States to Britain's public health system to Russia's interior ministry. So the true impact today may come as employees log back in. And security experts say the situation will be further worsened by copycat versions of the malware, which they're already starting to see. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.